Welcome to Emil Franzing's Voices of the West, dedicated to the principle that America was better off when our TV shows featured cowboys instead of lawyers. You can't say that enough, I, t- I think. Um, uh, it's very, very important. Uh, welcome to another edition of Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. I'm Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, across the table from me. I always wash and... my mouth out after I say that word. <laughs> Lawyers? Yeah. Okay. He's, he's, he's off to the bathroom now. Uh, <laughs> and uh, in Los Angeles, it is our good friend and colleague, Mr. Todd Roberts. Howdy, sir. Gentlemen, how are we today? We be we wonderful. We didn't wake you up, did we? <laughs> no, you did not wake me up. I mean, listen, although Nola has worked me to death <laughs> since about six this morning. Oh I'm not going, God. I'm not complaining. Okay. Don't get me wrong. Okay. Don't, I'm not complaining, okay. but right. I'm just sharing with you my observations. She I does see. that to keep you out of trouble. Yeah, I reckon so. All right. We got us a great <clears throat> show today. We were supposed to have somebody else on the show, but uh, she Victoria Jackson, but she decided uh, it's more important if we get a copy of the book and uh, find out what that book is all about. That is good. I've seen before we have her on, so she's been pushed back to October or November, and instead we're doing a show that uh, Todd has been wanting to do for some time. Me too. And Bunker has been wanting to do for some time, and I guess I've been wanting to do it as well. We three. Yeah, we're going to talk about the role of uh, the folks in the movie biz behind the camera. camera. And with us to talk about that is uh, Western Writers of America author and good friend Michael F. Blake. Howdy, sir. Good afternoon, guys. Welcome to our program. And before we get into what we got to get into, Bunker's got some birthdays to talk about there. Yeah, I kind of like to honor the folks that, that made us what we are today. And I'm going to start out with a fellow born in 1914 on the 14th of September, Mr. Clayton Moore. Ooh. Hi, old Clayton. There you go. Uh, on the 15th, good fellow, worked with him, Henry Darrow from the High Chaparral. Ah, yeah. On the ah. 16th, this is for Harry, one of his all-time favorites, Morgan Woodward. Oh, yeah. And also, <laughs> it's also Rosh Hashanah on, on the 16th. On the 17th, or... And, and November 23rd is William Bonney, mm-hmm. the kid. Yeah. They don't know which one's the right date, but they'll like lean with November. <laughs> and then the 19th is Rudy Ramos, mm. played Wind on High Chaparral. Mm-hmm. On the 20th, born in 1997, Kermit Maynard. And I saw him in G. Not 1997. 18, did I say 19? You said 19. No, that was, that's, that's a typo. <laughs> that was 1897, and I saw him in a Gene Autry this morning. Yeah. Uh, he, he was fighting with Gene, and he, Gene beat him again. I think he was a probably a better horseman than his brother Ken. I think he was all around better cowboy than Ken. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, the 22nd, uh, this, uh, next, this next Saturday, yeah, it was Friday, you know, his first day of fall. Alrighty then. Now All let's right. fall into our show. Let's fall right on into the show. Uh, Todd Roberts, you're, this is uh, your baby here, so let's get her started. Well, you know, I, I think that uh, I think that we, we, we forget, um, unfortunately, the power of the director, and we forget the power and magnitude of. Uh, especially certain directors who rank high above all others. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's kind of a, 
a group of those guys, and then there's the majority who are playing a very far, far distant second fiddle, as it were. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, John Ford uh, is at the very top of that group that is separates itself from the rest. Mm-hmm. And I say that for two reasons. I say it for number one, six Oscars. Four for feature films and two for documentaries. I also say it for the... Uh, artists that he created as actors, writers, uh, and Behind cinematographers and, and so forth. He had a huge influence on this industry and he had a huge interest in, uh, uh, influence on so many other great directors. And we'll get into that during the show, but I can't think of a better person to talk about John Ford because he's the only one on this show or any other show that I know of that ever was in Mr. Ford's presence. So let's talk to Mr. Michael Blake. Okay, I was I started to get in his presence on Real Mobile when he came over and visited Wayne and congratulated him. Okay. Go ahead, okay, Michael. Bunker, I, I apologize. <laughs> I, would, I would like to say I was in the presence of Ford, and I was. I was at his funeral. I unfortunately never met the man. My father did. My father worked for him twice. Uh, my father introduced me to John Ford. And but I did see Ford at the funeral, uh, which everybody that was anybody in Hollywood was there. Uh, it was just boy, if they dropped a bomb on Blessed Sacrament Church that day, Hollywood would have been wiped out. Mm-hmm. Um, Ford there's so many things you can say about Ford Uh, one thing I you know he has that rough uh, brusque demeanor Mm -hmm. Uh, if you watch that great documentary by Peter Bogdanovich called uh, directed by John Ford Mm -hmm. he asks Ford a question he said Mr. Ford you filmed a land rush for three bad men how did you do it with a camera for, for <laughs> simply points points off camera and says with a camera <laughs> I love it uh, that was Ford uh, Ford was playing John Ford uh, as much as John Wayne developed John Wayne uh, John Ford developed John Ford the director that would bite your head off if you crossed him uh, nobody dared uh, question his actions, and if they did, they soon regretted it. Uh, I told Todd earlier a story about a young actor telling Ford, "Well, I think you know the scene would be better if we did it this way." Ford reached into his back pocket, pulled out his wallet, and handed the kid the, his Directors Guild of America card, and then put it back in his wallet and went now and said. Now, we're going to do the scene this way. Um, part of that was, I asked I asked Harry Carey Jr., who's a very good friend of the family, and I said, why do you think Ford was the way he was? He said, because he was the captain. Mm-hmm. Nobody else had to be came before the captain. Mm-hmm. Nobody else made decisions other than the captain. And he said, Ford had that demeanor so that it kept 
people from trying to take advantage or say, well, I think this. I, and it comes to mind, I was doing, I worked for several years on a television series on and off. Still on, although now strike addled. And if the directors were really good, really strong directors, the cinematographer basically kept his mouth shut. But if a director who was newer, maybe not as authoritative, the cinematographer would start trying to tell him how to line up shots. Mm. And you can't have that. You know, it's one thing if you turn to your, you're the director and you turn to your cinematographer and say, well, do you think we can get the shot this way with the lighting, da-da-da-da-da? Mm -hmm. And they can say yes or no. But you do not tell your director, well, this is the way you need to do it. Dad always told me a story from Sunset Boulevard. When you have the scene, you know, where you see William Holden floating in the pool and you're looking up at him. Wilder mm -hmm. went to the director of photography and he said, okay, this is what I want. I want it to look like we're looking up at him in underwater. And he said, you figure it out. And he walked away. Mm -hmm. The cinematographer, who was great, he put a mirror on the bottom of the pool. Yeah. So you, what you see, you see the reflection of Holden in the mirror, but it looks like you're looking up at him from the bottom of the pool. Oh, interesting. Cinematographers yeah. were like, you know, and Ford, Ford always said, get a good cinematographer you can work with that knows what you want. I mean, Winton Hoach worked with Ford on so many films, and the only time... You know, of course, there's the great story and she wore a yellow ribbon shooting the thunderstorm. Mm -hmm. And the thunderstorm rolls in and suddenly everyone's told, get back on your horses, get back on your horses. And um, Ford says, go ahead and shoot it. And reportedly, Hoach said, well, I'll shoot it, but under protest. Mm -hmm. That's what Ford would say. The truth, the truth of the story was, Ford said to Hoach, do you think we can do it? Because back then, Technicolor film required a lot of light. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I'm not sure. And Ford said, open the aperture all the way to let in the most amount of light. And if it doesn't work, I'll take the aid for it. Well, needless to say, you have one of the greatest shots mm. in cinema history. Mm. And Hoach always said, yeah, that old buzzard, he was never above telling a good story, saying that I wrote it under protest when it never happened. <laughs> but, well, but only was, to add to that. And it wasn't Go ahead, Michael. Too. Go ahead. Go ahead, Michael. But Ford, Ford liked to tell. Ford laid, Ford laid the blarney on big time. Uh, you know, he told one reporter years later that he was a cowboy in Arizona. He never was a cowboy. <laughs> ben Johnson said he looked like a sack of walnuts on a horse. Uh, you know, he said, he, he, he said this. He said it was all blarney. It was all, you know. It was like the old line from Man of Shot Liberty Balance, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Yep. Um, it never hurt anybody. It was never spiteful. 
Uh, but Ford liked to lay the Blarney on, not just in interviews, but in his films. Well, that was the and Irishman in him. <laughs> oh, God, yes. I mean, he was more Irish than Ireland. Um, and he, Professional, uh, yeah. He, he, uh, he, like, he always said that gunfight at the, uh, my John and Clementine was exactly the way Wyatt Earp told him. It's no way near the truth of what happened. <laughs> Nor does it go, nor it completely is in contrast to the drawing that Wyatt Earp drew for him and he gave him. Of course. Completely as well. You watch that, you watch that. Well, first off, my darling Clementine is one of the great examples of filming in black and white and why it was so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And there are so many great shots. And you watch that gunfight, I don't care if it's true or not, it's an involving gunfight, and it, it takes its time to un- unfold, and when it does, boom, 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 and it's just, it's a great, it, my darling Clementine is one of my all-time favorite films. Mm-hmm. Uh, of Absolutely, course, which, absolutely. Which there's a lot of, but, and then of course, there's my all-time favorite scene in that movie after They've operated on uh, Chihuahua, Linda Darnell, and uh, Doc walks out of the, the bar, and Clementine says, you did great, John. He said, thanks, Clem. She's a brave girl. And Fonda's at the bar with um, uh, Jay Farrell McDonald, and he's watch- he watches her walk out. Fonda turns to the bartender and says, Matt, you ever been in love? And the bartender says, no, nope. been a bartender all my life. And it's just a great scene, and yeah. the lighting in it is just spectacular. Ford loves shooting in black and white. He said anybody can shoot in color, which is true. Uh, but nobody could capture scenes of beauty in color that Ford did. Well, yeah, he, 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 was like, no, he, he was like Orson, uh, Orson Welles in, in black and white, and... and what Wells well, what Wells did in Citizen Kane was just incredible. Waiting from Shanghai. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you where Wells went. Touch of that. evil. Touch yeah. of evil. Yeah. Wells first even got <laughs> to frame the film of Citizen Kane, he watched Stagecoach over and uh-huh. over yeah. and over. Now, you go watch Stagecoach. And then you watch Citizen Kane. Yeah, yeah. And yep. you will see where, where Wells got so many ideas. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, yes. they make this big, some historians make this big thing about, oh, Wells showed the ceiling. Baloney, <laughs> Ford did it before him. And, and, and I'm yeah. not taking anything away from Orson. He was a brilliant right. filmmaker. Yeah. And, and Orson said, they said, well, what directors do you like? He said, well, I prefer the old masters. By that, I mean John Ford, John Ford, John Ford. <laughs> Michael, I want, I want to quote you here for just a second. At least ways, I think you, this is in some of your writings, he was talking about Ford, and you said, Ford prized accuracy, but didn't want facts to interfere with his telling of a story. Absolutely. You watching Shavori Yellow Ribbon, when they go, when Wayne has retired, he rides out of the fort and he goes back to find John Agar and the, the men, and he and Ben Johnson go in to talk to Pony of Box. Half of the soldiers, when they chase the horses out through the Indian village, half the soldiers are wearing the Kepi hats. Now, no soldier in his right mind 
in the Indian Wars ever, ever wore a kepi hat in the field. Mm -mm. That's right. It was reserved solely for post duty because it wouldn't protect you from the sun. Right. And the cavalry hats that Ford gave his men in the movies weren't exactly what the cavalry hats were in real life. But Ford knew what looked good. And he knew that half the guys wearing the kepi hats would distinguish it and break up the group of men that they'd know was this one, it was that one. He had the kepi hat on Dobie Carey. Well, he had the cavalry hat on John Agar, mm -hmm. all these things. It, it, it was, Ford always went for what looked good. Mm. And you know, he, he never, you know, one big fall in Yellow Ribbon is all the cavalry men had sabers. They never carried sabers in the field, mm -hmm. but Ford liked the look of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Henry Fonda and leading the charge in Fort Apache. You take that shot of Plana going full out gallop with the saber in his hand, mm. take that saber away, and that moment, that moment in that film of Fonda charging, leading his men, loses a dramatic appeal. Yeah. The saber in the hand is, is, is a military thing. The same thing in um, a stagecoach. All the cavalry guys are coming to the rescue, and they got their sabers out, mm -hmm. you know, and they chased the Indians off. But it looked good, and it was, in some ways, it's what the public expected. Now, you, know, you can give the public the truth, mm -hmm. and look at how many Westerns they made in the 70s and that, where they tried to debunk the West, and mm -hmm. everybody was yeah. brown and dirty, right. and all, all the actors had so much brown on their face, I thought they were going to break out into a chorus of Swanee, <laughs> but it, it just, it, it, it isn't what the public wanted, you know? Well, that goes back to the story of uh, the imagine. it's a, a urban legend or myth that there's a conversation between John Ford and Sam Peckinpah, and they're both talking about cavalry pictures. Of course, uh, uh, Peckinpah made Major Dundee, and then Ford made all the great other cavalry pictures. And and they're talking the back and forth. It's an imaginary conversation. I've never been able to confirm it. But basically, uh, uh, Peckinpah is chiding uh, Ford, and he says, "You know, uh, uh, you know, they, they their uniforms were torn and tattered and." And uh, and uh, and 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 they were they were frayed and they were dirty and so on. And he said, and Ford looked at him and said, supposedly, yeah, but they sure do look great in Technicolor. <laughs> exactly. Oh. I've never found I've never found proof of that that comment either. Uh, Michael, yeah. well, hang, hang on, Booker. Yeah, Michael, you've got a book coming out on John Ford. Uh, uh, quickly talk about that and then we got to go to a break one of you should ask it's called the cavalry trilogy <laughs> john ford john wayne and the making of three great westerns it's all about the making of ford's cavalry trilogy ford apache for yellow ribbon rio grande it will be out march 5th 2024 it'll be in trade paperback i've got some photos that nobody has ever ever seen Ooh. Um, some great behind-the-scenes shots. I, I had access to all of Ford's papers, so I talk about the difference in the script from the original script version to the movie. 
uh, things that happened, including how a young stunt guy by the name of Bent Johnson <laughs> saved several stunt guys in a runaway wagon, and Ford said, uh, you'll be rewarded for this, and Ben always thought, oh, I'll get another stunt job. He mm-hmm. called into Ford's office a couple of days later. He handed Ford handed him an envelope, and it was a contract. Ben said, I got down to where it said they pay me $5,000 a week. He said, I signed it. And that was the beginning of Ben Johnson as an actor. Yeah. Uh, there was a horrible stunt going on on Fort Apache with uh, John Hudkins uh, when he falls off the horse. And um, he uh, broke his back. But a year later, he's back doing stunt work. Uh, all right. We, all sorts of things. All right. We got to do our first commercial break. Uh, we're talking with Western Writers of America author Michael F. Blake. Uh, he also runs a Facebook page, John Ford Directs, and the uh, Cavalry Trilogy as well. So uh, check those out, if you will. Um, you'll find some very interesting information and some very intelligent folks talking very intelligently about the movies. And that's what we're trying to do today. Us? Uh, yeah, us. Uh, we'll be back on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West with Harry Alexander, Bunker de France, and Todd Roberts right after this. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true west where a large number of westerns were filmed. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallionranch.com or call 520-297-0252. This is Eb Wilkinson at Wilkinson Wealth Management. If you're within 10 to 15 years of retirement and you're putting off retirement planning, my advice to you is don't do that. Ignoring your retirement planning won't make it go away. It'll just make it worse. Give me a call and let's work on your plan together so you can retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, at 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Watch Old West silent movies anytime at VoicesOfTheWest.net. We all make promises, big and small. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. I do solemnly swear to help you when you are in need. To be considerate and caring. To be your loving, faithful friend, partner, child, parent, neighbor. One of our most important commitments is to support our nation's veterans. Learn how you can help a veteran going through a difficult time by visiting maketheconnection.net. Take Dodge City over there. Gamora of the Plains, they call it. Jump off spot. 
people coming and going all the time, good, bad, and worse. Temper's high. A man will draw his gun quicker to prove a point than he'll draw on his logic. This is the Voices of the West. Franzi's of Voices of the West, Harry Alexander Bunker to France, Todd Roberts in Los Angeles. Our guest is Michael F. Blake, author, Western Writers of America author, and uh, quite the authority on our topic of uh, John Ford. And I got to tell you, if you're enjoying that kind of music there, that w- great Western music, uh, before this program starts on its live stream and when it finishes with its live stream, you can listen to a bunch more That's of this it. music. Uh, it's 24/7. called it twenty four seven. The thing is called the Roundup, and uh, you can find it right there at voicesofthewest.net. dot Toe tapping music. Toe tapping music for oh, Michael, sure. Michael, I've got a question for you here. Yes, sir. Because you know, one of the things about Ford that really I think made him stand out is that the music in his films, because he had. A, he had, I guess, a policy of trying to use authentic to the period type music. But if in Fort Apache, uh, the dance sequences really stand out. A fellow named Kenny Williams apparently, I guess, coordinated those. But the, the dance with the sergeant majors, uh, oh, that, that is one so of my good. favorite scenes, oh. all-time scenes in any movie, but especially yeah. in a John Ford movie. Yeah. And also the the fact that uh, uh, We Will Gather at the River played such an important part in Ford's life with Danny Brzezegi. Could you comment on both of those for us? <clears throat> well, uh, here's a little, funny you bring that up, here's a little piece from my upcoming book I write about Ford explaining, if you want to know John Ford, you not you got to know the Irish. And I'm talking about Ford and I say, Ford also celebrates the feeling of family and community by a gathering, such as a dinner scene in How Green Was My Valley, or the dances found in The Grapes of Wrath, My Darling Clementine, Ford Apache, Wagon Master, or briefly The Searchers. Ford always tried to put a dance in a film if he could, because he felt it gave a sense of history, a sense of where we came from. And quite honestly, he liked it. Uh, Danny Borzegi, who you mentioned, he was the brother of Frank Borzegi, the director. Danny was the longest stock company member mm-hmm. uh, for Ford. He started out on the Iron Horse in 1924, mm. and he was with Ford right up to wow. seven women in wow. 1964. Was, wow. As a matter of fact, you'll see him in several films. Huh. Uh, in The Searchers, when uh, Ken Curtis and Jeff Hunter have the fight, and uh, there's a little guy there, and they they land on a violin, mm-hmm. and he says, hey, your violin, that was Danny Borzegi. <laughs> uh, he's, he's in Ford Apache. Ford would put him in anything, and Danny... Every time Ford, if you were out in Monument Valley and the crew's standing around, somebody had yelled, he's coming, Danny. And Danny <laughs> would start playing on his accordion, bringing in the sheet. <laughs> that is great. It was, it was like the whistle that the Admiral was coming on the ship. Wow, uh, that is played, great. 
that, oh, on the he, quiet man he's there in the club yeah the accordion. That, oh, yeah, is, he's that, been, that is great he's in so many films now we're uh, supposed to be talking about the other jobs that happen on the movie set and we've we've <laughs> we're still on john ford because i mean it's such a great t- he the man is such a great topic his movies are most excellent topics as well but michael f blake you uh, you worked in hollywood and uh, recently retired you were a makeup artist and, and uh learned that craft from a lot of other famous makeup artists yeah i spent i spent six years of my life in the film industry 20 as a kid actor my dad spent 40 years as a character actor then I spent uh, 40 years as a makeup artist. So between my dad and I, we spent 100 years in the in the, the cinema. Oh my um, god! <laughs> yeah, working as a makeup artist was great. Uh, you had some great people you worked with, and you had other people that you like to push in front of an oncoming bus. Uh, but that's true. That's true in any business. Mm-hmm. You know, I was looking up stuff on here, and of course. We- Knowing you and the makeup thing, I was looking up stuff on some of the different pictures, and I came across the fellow's name, who I had I had not heard of, and then I read about him, and I thought, my God, uh, we got to mention him. And I know you probably have some stories about him, although he's. Uh, uh, anyhow, I'll go get right into it. Jack Dodd, he was a makeup pioneer, 226 films. His first job was on the big trail, after which he spent the rest of his career oh, yeah. at MGM at the head of the uh, makeup well, department. Jack, Jack, was head of the, Jack was head of the makeup He and William Tuttle held the record for being charge of the makeup department at MGM for X amount of years. Jack started out in the silent era. Uh, he was the second makeup department head at MGM after Cecil Holland. Hmm. And then William Tuttle came in late late 40s, early 50s, and he stayed until early 80s. He worked with Lon Chaney, and I know that's close to your heart. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they knew... All those guys knew each other, and they were just a great group of guys that if you, if you were interested in learning and you kept your mouth shut, you weren't a smart ass, they would teach you anything and everything. Okay. And if you were a smart ass, boy, you would get buried. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we, we, we know movies require a director. They require a makeup artist. They require a cinematographer. They require the assistant director who kind of takes the director's stuff and imparts it to the uh, he's, to, he's, to the actors. He's like the executive officer. Yeah, yeah. and and then you you come across these other bizarre jobs like best boy. What the hell does the best boy? Do. Is he really the best boy? Yes, he is. <laughs> yes. He's the, the best boy is technically the assistant to the lighting director. Uh, yeah. So the lighting director, also known as the gaffer, he would say, all right, we're going to put a light up here. And the best boy would then take the electrician and say, okay, guys, let's put an arc light here. Bring in, bring in a, a barn door, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. The, the lighting director would light the scene, and the best boy would get the orders done. You yes. know, he would tell his best boy, "Hey, put up, put up, 
double over on that light there and things like that. That's a very so important a, role. I want to cook oh, very important. Well, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. <clears throat> you can have all the actors you want. Most of them I don't want. Uh, you can you can have all the directors you want with a handful of really good ones. But if you don't have a good crew, you are screwed. Yeah, mm -hmm. big time. You know, if you don't treat your crew right, two things are going to happen. One, if, if you want to get, you know, we have a saying in the business, we're losing the light, meaning the end of the day is coming and we're losing the sunlight. We've got to get the shot. Mm-hmm. You, you kick to... off a crew and you treat a crew badly, you've never seen so many people move so slow. <laughs> now, on the other hand, if you treat a crew well, they will move mountains for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I worked with a great director by the name of Peter Weir, a witness, a master and commander, and I did a... I had a scar on a guy's head. This was for um, fearless, and they were survivors of the plane crash. And he saw the scar, and he said, who did this? Oh, God, I'm in trouble. He <laughs> said, that's me. He comes up, he says, that is a wonderful scar. And he puts his hand out, he goes, I'm Peter Weir. I said, yeah, I know who you are. <laughs> and he said, well, what's your name? Well, after that, every morning, good morning, Michael. Good morning, Peter. Good night, Michael. Wow. Good night, Peter. Not just to me, though, not just to me, to every member of that crew. We also had extras that were playing passengers in the plane. Every morning he'd come in and say, ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Thank you for being here. I think we're going to have a great day. End of the day. Ladies and gentlemen, he'd applaud and say, thank you for an excellent day. Got a guy like that, you'll jump in front of an oncoming bullet yeah. for. Yeah, for sure. Oh, you know, you got the best boy. You got the key grip. Uh, you can't move the camera without somebody laying dolly track. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's, no. You know, there's tons of jobs in there, but uh, the most important one... Well, they're all important. <clears throat> but you have the special effects guys like yeah, Lidecker. And, and special, yeah. Oh, God. No, let's not get going with Howard and Theodore Lidecker. <laughs> Why not? Oh, my two favorite gentlemen uh, for uh, special effects. Uh, we got to take another so, commercial break here. For, hang on, Todd. We'll come back with you uh, after this commercial break here. Our guest, Michael F. Blake. Our topic, John Ford. And the rest of the movie industry here on Abel Francis' <laughs> Voices of the West. Can you even imagine switching back to pen and paper to run your business? Every year, we become more and more dependent upon our technology. If your network is not set up properly, you're just one click or one email away from losing data critical to your operation. Arizona Computer Guru offers a host of services to prevent and protect you from disaster. From online backup services to email filtering to fully managed network services, Arizona Computer Guru is here to keep your network secure, your data safe, and your budget in the black. To schedule your free consultation, call 304-8300. The Tucson Trap Ski Club dates from 1948 and is now at 7800 West Old Ajo Highway. The club owns 80 acres and leases 300 more from Pima County that supports 50 trap fields, 15 skeet fields, two five-stand fields, two sporting plays courses with 12 stations each, a 9,000-square-foot clubhouse, 200 full-service RV hookups for members, and free Wi-Fi. This expansive facility gives enough room to host major national and international events annually, bringing thousands of people to the community. Check it out at TucsonTrapAndSkeet.com. This is Eb Wilkinson at Wilkinson Wealth Management. If you're within 10 to 15 years of retirement and you're putting off retirement planning, my advice to you is don't do that. Ignoring your retirement planning won't make it go away. It'll just make it worse. 
Give me a call and let's work on your plan together so you can retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, at 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Hello, my name is Travis Mills and I make westerns and you're listening to Voices of the West. Franzi's Voices of the West, Harry Alexander, Bunker de France, and Todd Roberts with you. Our guest is Michael F. Blake, Western Writers of America author, and John Ford aficionado. And uh, my God, he knows so much about so many other topics. I mean, if we talk Lon Chaney, he'll jump right in there and give, <laughs> give us a dissertation on law. <laughs> and uh, I, I played the, the, the Travis Mills drop there for you, Michael, because that is one director and we've had him on the show a couple of times that is one one fella i don't know if you're familiar with him he made 12 westerns in 12 months during the pandemic and his westerns are way good most excellent i mean my my favorite one is counting bullets and and the the scenery he does everything in a movie as he directs it like i imagine john ford would have done I mean, he's does he need a makeup artist? I don't know. <laughs> well, he probably he probably was doing the makeup himself too. Because yeah. this is one of those like five man crew movies. Yeah, independent. But Running Wild Films. Running Wild Films is his company, and uh, I encourage you to uh, check him out because he is just he's he besides being an incredible person, he's an incredible talent, and he's very. He's super intelligent yeah. when it comes to yeah. film. I've got, I've got and a Ford is one of his favorite directors. <laughs> so I wanted to tell the story oh, of, yeah. uh, oh, sorry. Um, of the, no worries, of what Michael was talking about, about, you know, the definitions of what different people do. And then when I tell this, Michael, please expound upon it because of your experiences with so many different directors. You know, uh, years and years ago, when my dad and I were uh, running a studio, uh, I was going through a desk that we took over these offices, and I knew what a lot of the terminology and titles were of people, but some I didn't. Uh, overly technical people, gaffer, key grip, best boy, and so on. And uh, I came across a... Uh, group of index cards and each one of them had a had a name had a title written on one side of the index card on the other side was a definition of what that title job title did and they had everyone on there from all you know director producer cinematographer screenwriter uh best boy uh uh gaffer uh key grip so on and so on and you go through each one, and I'd turn it over, and I'd look at the the explanation, and sometimes they were pretty self-explanatory, and you immediately got it. And, you know, but some, maybe not. And, you know, you get to producer, and it says, basically, the guy who writes the checks. And yeah. then, then you get to uh, the very last one in the pile, at the very end, was director. And it's the only one that was like this, because when you turned it over, there was only one three-letter word there in the description. And the description was, God. <laughs> and, and, 
I, I looked at it and I started laughing, you know. And my dad walked by me and he goes, what are you laughing about? We're working. And I said, well, <laughs> look at this. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, and I write the checks to God. <laughs> and, and, and oh, cool. you know, and, and cool. as he used to say to me, yeah, I'm the boss, but he gets to hire and fire you. Or yeah. she, mm -hmm. and you know, there's there's no other person on the film, the set, the project, that makes it go like they did, uh, yeah. no matter who they are. And so, why don't you talk a little bit about that, well, Michael? Don't forget well, the craft service guy. Yeah. Without the, the coffee. As yeah. I said earlier, uh, when I asked Adobe about Ford, he said he's the captain of the ship. No one questions what the captain does. If the captain says, you know, here's a great story of Ford. They're going to shoot the river scene and two rode together. Ford pulls up, gets out of the car. Somebody hands him a cup of coffee. He looks around for a minute. He walks out into the river. And he goes about maybe, oh, three feet out. And he points his finger to the water and says, here, meaning that's where the camera is. He puts Stewart and Woodmark there, and it's a two-shot, and he tells <laughs> he tells both Woodmark and Stewart separately, you know, be careful of Stewart. He tries to upstage you in scenes, <laughs> da, 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 da. and then he'd say the same thing to Stewart. So they shoot the whole scene in a two-shot, and Ford goes, right, that's well, and that was it. Nobody, no, you watch that scene, it's a wonderful scene, and he never, Ford never did excessive takes. He always said, if you do excessive takes, you ruin the freshness of the scene. Mm -hmm. And he, he knew what he wanted. Wingate Smith, his brother-in-law, was his first assistant director since 1928. He said every morning Ford came on the set, he knew exactly what he was going to do how he's going to shoot the scene. Now, he might be lining up the scene, and he gets struck by inspiration. And an example I use is in Rio Grande. It's the scene where Ken Curtis, Ben, Toby, uh, uh, and Claude Garman Jr. are in the tent just before Maureen O'Hara comes in. And during the setup, Ken Curtis is strumming the guitar and playing you know, singing Aha San Antonio. Ford said, teach the boys this. So he quickly taught them the song. And that became, that starts the scene. You see them in the tent singing Aha San Antonio. And it simply happened because Ford was there and Curtis started uh, just strumming along, wait, killing time. And Ford said, put it in. And it's a great way to break up the scene of Maureen O'Hara coming in to see her son after he's been kicked out of West Point. Mm. Directors, good directors, are inspired by moments like that. They have, they'll hire actors. My dad got hired a lot to do uh, play auctioneers because they knew my dad could ad lib dialogue, which I tried it one time and it's in. Terribly, terribly <laughs> difficult thing to do. Yeah. But Dad had an ability with that 
that the director would say, you know, for leading into a shot, he'd say, and there was an episode of The Rookies, and my dad was playing this auctioneer on a movie lot. And he said, all right, well, Larry, we're going to have the camera on a crane. The car's going to come in. And while that's going on, I want you to auction something off or wind up an auction. And then as the two actors get out of their car and come close, then go into your dialogue. My dad said, okay, boom, did the whole thing ad lib. Uh, That was the other part of why Ford hired people. He hired people that he knew. He hired people that he could count on. He didn't have to sit there and discuss motivation and discuss this and discuss that because he would refuse to do it. Hmm. He hired them because they knew they were good. They could do their job. You know, he might tell them something if something wasn't quite right, but very, very rarely. he had the, These people knew what Ford wanted, and Ford knew what they were capable of. And any good director will have a stock company of people. Frank Capra had it. Uh, William Wellman had some. Some may not be a lot of people. They may only be a small handful, but they can rely on these people to deliver, even if it's just a small part. They don't have to worry about that actor uh, trying to do the job. They know they're going to do it, and it's, it's, it's a burden lifted off the director. Michael, do you think it's because John Ford had experience uh, previously in in doing silent films, not necessarily he did direct some, but uh, he worked with his brother Francis Ford on silent films. Do you think it's th- that experience that um, uh, allowed him to become the director that he was? Oh yes, and you can even say that about Frank Capra, you can say that about William Wyler, you can say that about William Wellman, you can say that about Howard Hawks, okay. they all. you can say it about Raoul Walsh, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm sure there's several others I could come up with if I took a minute to think, but all these guys, they were, back then you had to tell your story visually. And if you weren't a visual filmmaker, if you were just a by-the-book numbers, you never went anywhere. But then these other guys, they'd come up with things, or they'd be inspired. They'd see something and go, wait a minute, put that in there. Let's do that. I'll go back to Ford again in The Searchers. Ken Curtis is playing the guy that loses Vera uh, Miles. And during one day in, this, uh, in between takes, he's doing... Uh, the talk with the, the Dolly and that type of thing and he did, he used to do that character on the Lucky uh, oh, it was a radio show the uh, Sons of the Pioneers did mm-hmm. Ford okay. heard it, he said I want you to do this and he says, oh, make me look like an idiot and he said, look, you lose the girl if you talk and you do this, people are going to remember you, and he was absolutely right hmm. wow. and to this day you watch some of these scenes and searchers with an audience and when he comes in and says oh thank you to unhand my finances and my the audience laughs the yeah. audience laughs it wow. proves that Ford was right wow you know there's a there's or a, when he sings skip to Malou my darling and I just wanted to mention this uh Navajo interpreters. We're talking about crew jobs. There was a, a, a brothers, Lee and Frank yep. Bradley. They, they, they did 11 of Ford's films. And nobody ever talks about their contribution 
Well, I do mention them in the book. Oh, Lee Brad matter of fact, Lee Bradley is the Navajo translator in Rio Grande. Yeah, in the film, he plays yeah. an officer, and after the Apaches have attacked the fort, he starts identifying them, Mescaleros, White Mountain. That's Lee Bradley. Oh, cool. And then you also had the Yazzie brothers, and you also had the Stanley brothers, John Stanley, of course, best known as Luke's father and uh, other other ca- characters. He, he, a lot of people remember him from McClintock when he says, where's the whiskey? Great party. That's John Stanley. Ford used him over and over, and so did John Wayne. Uh, there, there was also, there was, a, and Ford, even when he shot Rio Grande, which had to go up to Moab because the guy at Republic, Herbert Yates, wanted to shoot there because it was cheaper because you had hotels and that. You didn't have to bring in tents and all this stuff. Ford made sure that 60 Navajos came up and stayed with them and worked on the film. Uh, my favorite story about Ford and the Navajos. Shortly after finishing uh, She Wore Yellow Ribbon, uh, which was in October, November, December, the valley got hit with a very rough snowstorm and pretty much all the Navajos in the area were were isolated they couldn't get supplies word got to Ford I think it was um, Harry Golding they called him Ford used his military contacts and and the army supply plane flew into the valley and dropped down supplies for the Navajos so they wouldn't have a bad winter that's like Harry yeah, that's like Harry Carey uh, when the big flood hit and he had all the Navajos working on his ranch. He took care of them. Mm-hmm. And, you yeah. Know, and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, Speaking right. of Harry Carey, we need, we need for Michael to uh, explain the importance of Harry Carey and John Ford. We do, but first we got to finish up the, the commercial break here. Got to pay the bills, you know, Bunker. What the <laughs> All right, it's Samuel Franzi's Voices of the West, Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, and Todd Roberts. Michael F. Blake, our guest, will be back. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true West, where a large number of Westerns were built. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home, perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallionranch.com or call 520-297-0252. This is Ed Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management, where we manage money for gun owners. When people turn 50, something miraculous happens. They start to get serious about retirement planning. 
They've done very well so far and want to be certain they power into the retirement they've earned. Let me guide you to retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, at 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Read classic Western comics anytime at voicesofthewest.net. Hello? I'm Mr. Red. No doubt you've heard about rescue groups for dogs and cats. But did you know there's a rescue group for horses? That's right. It's called Horses Around Rescue. Founders Steve Boyce and Teresa Worrell are helping out all those equine victims of neglect and cruelty by giving them a place to restore their health and wellness. And Horses Around provides a nurturing and natural environment where horses can be horses, so they can be adopted out into forever homes. More than 120 horses, mules, and donkeys have been adopted out, but like everything else, it costs money to run the project. Horse It Around is a 501c3 nonprofit located in Southeast Arizona. Your tax-deductible donations to Horse It Around will go a long way so those horses can be horses. Check out the website, horseitaroundrescue.org. Make a difference in a horse's life. That's horseitaroundrescue.org. I was just in the general store, and I was never so aggravated in my life as when I heard one of them Easterners tell old man Simpson that he's a-packing and leaving these parts because a man's life ain't worth a second-hand jaw of tobacco. This is the Voices of the West. There's an old, old tale, and it's often told of the men who fight for the six-gun gold. It's hard to get, and it's hard to hold. They work, and the slave, and the skimp, and the save for the glare of the dare and six-gun gold. We're back on Emil Francis' Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, Todd Roberts with you, and our guest, Michael F. Blake. And we're talking uh, the roles of folks behind the scenes in movies. And, well, you know, basically we've done that, but we're also talking John Ford. And uh, i got to play Ray Whitley, too. So uh, you know. In the time that we got left, and I know there's not enough time, nope. can you explain the Fordian touch without the next 20 hours? <laughs> okay. Um, first off, two things. My Facebook page is called John Ford's Cavalry Trilogy. Ah, yes, sorry. Good. And there's one group of people we have not addressed as far as what's important to a movie, and that is the stuntmen and women. Ah, very yes, much. Yes. I have been I have been asked often by people who are you, who's your favorite actor or favorite people to work with. I say the stunt people. I have tremendous respect for what they do. They are some of the greatest, kindest, fun people to be around. And humble. Uh, the first time I met Bunker, we never worked together, but it was like he and I had known each other for years. Mm. There's a certain camaraderie that we all have that we work in the business. Even if we never work together, there's right. a camaraderie. And these stunt people, I'm telling you, I... God bless them because I you couldn't put enough zeros on a check to make me do some of that crap. But they they are some of the greatest people to work with, some of the most wonderful people to work Amen. with, and I want to make sure they get the shout out they deserve. Damn straight. Now a forty in a forty in touch. A forty in touch is like, for instance, earlier when I mentioned how Ford came up with the song Aha San Antone. Another forty in touch would be uh, in How Green Was My Valley, 
when uh, Maureen O'Hara is getting married and her veil just flies up in the air. Mm. Well, that was all done by Ford having a bunch of fans hit it <laughs> so it would go up and give that look. Wow. Um, a 40-in touch is something Ford came up with to make the scene even better or special. Uh, the scene in My Darling Clementine, you ever you ever been married? No, I've been a bartender all my life. Look at the, watch that scene and look at the lighting. That's a 40 in touch mm-hmm. there. Uh, he just, and it, he, he wasn't alone. Hitchcock had his own touches. Weiler had his own touches. Capra had their touches. They knew things. It, it, it was just things they knew that would go, God, put that in there. That'll be good. And nine out of ten times, it was dynamite. It, it just made the scene so much special, and people remember it to this day. One of my favorite 40 scenes, Cheyenne Autumn. Mm-hmm. Richard Woodmark has just had talk with Edward G. Robinson playing Carl Schurz, and he tells Woodmark, get on the train. We're, we're going to go talk to the Indians. And he leaves. <clears throat> and Robinson walks over to a photo of Lincoln. Mm. And you see Robinson's image reflected in the photo on Lincoln. Mm. And you softly hear uh, Battle Hymn of the Republic. And he says, old friend, old friend, what would you do? That's a, if that isn't a John Forty in touch, I'll eat a cardboard cake. Yeah, I hear you. It, it never leaves your memory. No, no, it doesn't. No, wow, wow. There was just never been a director like uh, John Ford. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I've I've sang the praises of Travis Mills. I think he is a young John Ford. But I'll tell you what. I don't think there's anybody else out there yeah, who can direct. Will ever equal him. No, no. I, well, I, let's I, also remember that, you know, in The Fableman, Steven Spielberg has the final scene is with John Ford. Yeah. Uh, a character played by, uh, you know, uh, of John Ford with the autobiographical character of Spielberg. But when, more importantly, yes, that's an indelible image in that scene. But when he accepted his Stahlberg Award, which is the highest honor anyone can get in the academy, he said, you know, I thank, and he started to name off directors and why he thanked them. And when he got, he said, I thank John Ford for showing me how to shoot a scene, mm. set up a scene. And I, show, and I thank Hitchcock for showing me how to take the audience, I'm paraphrasing, give them suspense, mm-hmm. and this one and that one. And, and, so the greatest modern-day filmmaker, being Spielberg, if you want to base it on Oscars and box office, owes it all to Ford. Kurosawa owes it all to Ford. Yep. As Michael said earlier, Wells owes it all to Ford. And Kurosawa, the great Japanese director, Akira Kurosawa, said, all of my films are Westerns. They're Western yep. See, they're, they're, they're Shakespearean stories set in Western uh, uh, Western scenarios and platitudes. And it's important to remember that the thing, the possession that Kurosawa valued the most was when he went to visit Ford on the set. He didn't speak that great of English. They were on a soundstage somewhere at Warner's probably. And he kept mentioning his hat. 
first time I kept, you know, saying, you know, I sure do like that wool. It was one of those Scottish wool driving caps, English mm-hmm. driving caps. That right. They're wool. And he kept, he kept pointing to it and mentioning it to it in one way or another in his broken English. And when he went back to Japan, a package showed up to him. And that was a hat, the same hat that Ford had. Wow. Ford bought one for him and shipped it to him in in, in, in Japan. Mm-hmm. And for the rest of his life that he had it, whenever he wore the hat, he walked around saying, uh, how do you like my hat? Do you like my hat? I really like my hat. Everybody likes my hat. Have yeah. you seen my hat? So that, there's no greater director than John Ford. And, uh, well, that, and uh, Go ahead, Michael. Well, one quick thing about Kurosawa. What might have been, had Ford's health held out, both he and Kurosawa were going to direct Torah, Torah, Torah. Oh, my God. And, oh. Uh, yes. of yes. course, oh. you know, Ford, Ford would have gotten complete naval cooperation, but yeah. physic- physically Ford wasn't able to do it. Kurosawa oh. did start directing the film, but left the project after a couple of weeks. Oh. But what might have been, my God. Yeah. Just oh, to my think God. Of that. And that's why Trish... That's why Toshiro Mifune plays Yamato, uh, yeah. uh, and it's such a great film, and it has its realism, and it, it's not glorified, it's not glissy, it's not slick, but it's real. I'll tell you, uh, 1973, my daughter was born on September 21st of that year, and I watched that movie, Torah, 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 because they wouldn't let me in the, in the uh, uh, labor room with my wife. Uh, the doctor who delivered my daughter was, uh, he must have delivered Christ because he's, <laughs> he was that old. <laughs> and he said, what do you want to be in there for? Uh, anyway, um, that, that just incredible. Michael F. Blake, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Anytime you want to be on the show, man, you just call and, or email and let us know and uh, slot is yours, I, man. I am I am at your disposal at any time. <laughs> it is the best one hour I've spent in weeks. Con mucho <laughs> gracias, <laughs> mi amigo. You yes, guys, indeed. you guys, you guys are awesome and just make my day. Hey. <laughs> Michael, right. don't listen. Don't you know? It's that's a brave and bold statement for you to say because I remember you at the Algonquin Cowboy lunches. You had a good time there. <laughs> This is better. Yeah, right. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) you. And on that note, we have to say thank you and see ya. 78, 79. Adios, you cavalry troopers. So long, everybody. We'll talk at you next week. Thanks for listening to Emil Franzing's Voices of the West. 